If you have a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 11. Uh, if you need to use the Pew Bible in front of you, uh, just take it and open up to page 795, and that'll get you right to where we're studying in Mark's Gospel, chapter 11 this morning. Page 795 if you're using a Pew Bible. Okay, well, let's do this. Would you stand as we read these uh, verses from God's Word? Mark chapter 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening, and when evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree wither away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I think we can be honest, if you're just reading this chapter for the first time, uh, you might kind of think this is a classic example of reading Mark's gospel and going, what are you talking about? What is happening in this chapter? Um, as a preacher, you're kind of tempted to go, well, I'll just preach the triumphal entry, everyone likes that, and everything else about the fig tree, I'm just going to skip to chapter 12, maybe. I mean, you think about what we just read. I mean, you have the classic chapter or the classic section most people are familiar with, Jesus riding into, uh, into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And then apparently Jesus gets really upset at some fig tree, uh, has a meltdown in the temple, and then concludes by teaching on prayer. All right, check, please. <laughs> We're done. Um, 
Well, rest assured, things are not what they seem, and that is the case, what we have here. These 25 verses actually have a very unified theme behind them, and it drives us to a really, really important reality about Jesus Christ. But because nothing is what it seems in our text this morning, that is exactly what adds to the the apparent confusing nature of these various narratives linked together. Now, I have said before that when you do an overview study like we're doing of the Gospel of Mark, the disadvantage is we don't take the time to dive into one or two of those verses and really get all out of it that we could. This morning, however, this actually works in our favor because until you see the overview of what Mark is writing, you're not going to understand the individual passages, and a lot of times you come up with some teaching that is not exactly what Mark is talking about. So doing an overview is actually important so we understand what's happening in this chapter. Now, in these 25 verses, we have a lot of things that aren't what they seem. Number one, a king who's not what he seems, verses 1 through 11. A fig tree, that's not what it seems, verses 12 to 14. A temple, that's not what it seems, in verses 15 to 19. And a lesson, that is not what it seems, verses 20 to 25. So let's take a look at this amazing uh, 25 verses and see what is fact is going on. Number one, a king who's not what he seems. Now, this is a section of scripture that is familiar with people, even if they may not attend church on a regular basis. Most often, this passage, uh, commonly referred to as the triumphant entry, uh, either here in Mark or any one of the other gospels, is traditionally read on Palm Sunday because this is the event, this is the week preceding Easter Sunday. And so as a result, uh, you may hear this chapter read, and it's usually in the context of Easter, and that's how it's seen. This morning, we're not going to talk about the Easter event per se, and I think that's actually going to help you appreciate these 11 verses in a way that you might not have done so before. Now, if you are not familiar with Mark's gospel, let me get you up to speed a little bit about what's happening in these 11 verses. This is in the flow of Mark's narrative. It is Passover week in the city of Jerusalem. Passover is one of the most significant and important uh, events in the life of the Jew, and it is even to this day in modern Judaism. Passover is a very significant thing. If you have Jewish friends, you know that to be the case. Now, Passover is a name that is used to commemorate the events of Exodus chapter 12. If you're a note taker, you can write that down. Exodus 12, we have the final of the 10 plagues that God was bringing to the the kingdom of Egypt to release his people so that his people could come out of Egypt and worship at Mount Sinai. It is really where the people of Israel, the Hebrews, became a nation and became the people of God. The last plague was the angel of death. It was the most severe of the plagues and where the angel of death would go to every home and slay the firstborn of, of, of every family, of every animal, as a matter of fact. Uh, very significant. This, this feeds into the significance of the firstborn all throughout why God asks us to give, us, give him the first of everything we have, the first of our time so we gather on Sunday, the first of our finances so we offer our offerings. It is a significant uh, theological theme, the first of everything to the Lord. It comes back to the Passover. The death angel, however, would not go into the home and kill the firstborn of that home if there was the blood of the lamb now, here, here's some of the challenge. If you've ever been a Christian and you, you know Christianity too much, you're making all these assumptions. But they didn't have the sacrificial system at that point. They were just told, kill this lamb and put its blood on the doorposts on either side and on the lintel, the, the cross beam up top. 
you know, what's an amazing reality is when you put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel and the blood drips to the bottom, what do you have right there, right, a cross. It's, it's, it's amazing how even as far back as Exodus, we see foreshadowing God's redemptive plan, but they, they weren't thinking about that. They just, okay, so they would put the blood. And whenever the death angel would come to a home that would see the blood on the door, he would pass over that home. And that's why this, the event is called Passover, because the angel of death, the death angel would pass over the house. That plague, that last thing, was the catalyst. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. Pharaoh said, enough already, I cannot stand this. We can bear no more. You and your people, you accursed people, leave my land. And God used the Passover as the catalyst to the deliverance of God's people, and it's celebrated to this very day. Passover traditionally is a time of joyous, joyous celebration with high hopes of God's expectation of his salvation. So at the time of Mark's gospel, many people, many Jewish homes would be singing and reciting what's called the Hallel Psalm, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. It was on their lips. It's some of what they sang out when they saw Christ coming into the city. Because there was this, this fervent expectation, looking forward to another of God's great deliverances when he would bring again another exodus from their oppression and their slavery into the, the promised land, so to speak. It is into this context, it is in this environment, this, this, this almost fever pitch of anticipation of God's work and, and looking forward to God's deliverance for another exodus that Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem and intentionally on the back of a donkey. In fulfillment, as we study the book of Zechariah, of Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Everyone was expecting a Davidic deliverer. Everyone was expecting the Messiah. You even heard it. They said, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. But as we have been learning for the last three weeks or so, this is not the Messiah that they expect. This is not the king that he appears to be, at least to them. Now, we don't know how fully the people of Israel understood what he was doing. Just like the disciples, they just they didn't understand a lot of what was going on. They were expecting a political ruler. We see it right there in the text. They're associating him, the, uh, the coming kingdom of our father David, a political leader, a military leader, a conqueror to vanquish Rome, to free the people of God of their oppression, to enact another great exodus. Now, if you are a Christian, you go, well, yeah, that's exactly what Jesus did, right? But, but that's because you know the story. They had no idea that the biggest enemy to be defeated would be defeated. They thought the biggest enemy was Rome. They had no idea that the biggest enemy then and now is sin and our slavery and bondage to sin. They could only think about the things of the world they weren't thinking of Jesus to be this leading a great exodus of the people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. They were looking for Rome to be overthrown. These people, like Peter, like so often us as we've been learning the last couple of weeks, of Jesus' criticism still stands from Mark chapter 8, verse 33. Your mind is on the things of man, not on the things of God. See, friends, 
We know the story too well. This is where you have an advantage if you're new to being a Christian or reading your Bible. This is you have an advantage. Ask yourself this. What were these people thinking? I mean, I, well, we, just, we, we know what they were thinking. They're crying, Hosanna, the one who comes to save us. This is our deliverer in the name of God. But what is the first thing Jesus does? He goes into the temple and he rebukes it and basically calls them a fraud. Whoa. Now, again, if you're a Christian, you go, yeah, that's what happens because that's what Mark says happens. But think, if you're a Jew and you're thinking, this, this is the Messiah, this is the guy we've been thinking of, there he is, that's Hosanna, let's all go out there and greet him. And then he goes straight to the heart of the nation, the very heartbeat, the pulse of, of, of their national symbol of God's presence and their privilege, the focus point of God's redemptive activity on this planet, and there goes Jesus, and he rebukes it and says it's a, fel- fa- a fraud. Whoa. Whoa. Now, this is just a little bit of a side note to help you understand how maybe from one week they went from shouting Hosanna, and in one week's time they went to shouting crucify him. Friends, there's always a direct correlation between anger and disappointment to our expectations. And and there's a a ton of application here that we just can't quite dive into it, but I, I suspect that we're probably not much different than these people. We're probably expecting Jesus to do all kinds of things for us because we have our agenda for him. And when Jesus doesn't come through, we go from crying his praise to crying out in anger. I don't think we're that different from these people. Friends, I know for us as, as Christians, um, we have a few Jewish brethren that have come to know Christ. They, they, you know, first hour, Kevin really got it. We don't think about the temple. When was the last time you were wondering about the temple? You just don't, right? So for us, this is just kind of the way it goes. But stop for a minute if you're a note taker. You need to understand the infrastructure of what God is doing, why the Christian faith is a comprehensive view of reality. First Kings chapter eight, write that down. Second Chronicles five through seven. When the temple in its fullness was made and God came to inhabit the temple, Keep thinking about the story from, from Exodus 12, they come out and they're just a, a, a nation of slaves. They're a slave nation. They become a people, the nation of Israel, and then they become this powerful kingdom. And at the center of the kingdom, there's this glorious temple where Yahweh, the king of reality, exists. And all through their story, it's been about the tabernacle. First it was built in Shiloh and a little bit of a tent and that wasn't enough. And then they built temples and David became the king, got peace and says, I wanna build a temple. And God says, no, that's not for you. You're a man of blood. But your son, one of the most powerful kings of antiquity, he can build me a temple. And they build the most amazing temple. If you just read the dimensions of it, it's spectacular. And in 1 Kings 8, Solomon dedicates it to the the Lord. And it's just, you cannot read that chapter and not feel the excitement of God is doing something amazing. God has a habitation on earth. And, and Solomon was very well aware, so was David, so were all the people of God, and, and when they were in their right mind, they knew that God himself cannot be contained in a, in a temple, but that God condescended in his mercy to inhabit that place so that he could dwell with his people. They knew that God cannot be housed, but God said, I will meet you there, and I'll put my name there. 
And Solomon said, no matter what happens, when your people are far off and they cry to your temple from your, from your place in heaven, hear and answer. If your people are scattered, if they're defeated, if they're discouraged, if they're victorious, whatever it might be, and they look to your temple and they pray, hear from heaven and respond. And God said, I will. It was a joyous place where eternity and, temp- and, and, and earthly time met, where the infinite and the finite came together. It, it was amazing. That the things that I mean, just blow your mind, right? Nothing you've seen in a movie could compare. Chronicle said, and then the fire of the Lord came down, man. And everyone was like, whoa. The priests had to leave. Everyone had to leave because they couldn't even get near it because God's presence was so thick. That was the national symbol of, man, everything's going to be okay. The temple, but because God was there. And here's Jesus saying, kicking it over, saying, get out of here. This is a fraud. This is, and he rebukes them. He calls them a den of robbers. Whoa. Okay, we, we need to move on to point two. Point one is just simply to establish two things. Jesus is, in fact, the king, and all that comes with that, recognized by the fulfillment of prophecy, the people screaming out. Number two, then as now, how we can rightly recognize him as king and still have no idea what that means for us. That's something we gotta think through, friends. You can rightly recognize Jesus as king, but not connect the dots of the thousand implications of the way that, what that means for your life. And you can bring a whole bunch of expectations upon him that you think he has to meet. And if you're not lined up, right, what he says in Mark 8, 33, if you're not lined up with his word, man, you're bound to be disappointed. And that disappointment can lead to anger. Okay, that, that's a freebie. We gotta move on because that's not really what this passage is about. So let's, let's move on. That's the king who's not what he seems. And then we get the fig tree that's not what it seems. Now, verses 1 through 11 um, is pretty straightforward. But this next part, uh, verses 12 through 14, this is where it gets pretty intense, and Mark's literary genius comes out. Now, I've spoken to you, we've taught you that in Mark, he does something unusual, and for lack of a better way, we call them the sandwiches, where, where Mark will sandwich uh, an important point between in the middle of, two, uh, um, in the middle of something else. So, for example, you remember in Mark chapter 6, he starts talking about being a disciple of his, and Jesus is sending out his disciples and all that that means. And then abruptly, he starts talking about John the Baptist getting beheaded, and then abruptly, he wraps up his conversation about discipleship. And what I told you about, whenever you read Mark and you have these, and they've happened about six times so far, where he abruptly changes topics, brings in something else, and then wraps up the first thing he started talking about, Mark's doing that intentionally. And what he's doing is the thing that just got sandwiched in, that got jammed in there, is how you make sense of the things on other, either side, or the things on either side is how you interpret the thing he just jammed in there. So in Mark 6, when he's talking about raising disciples, and then he switches gears to John the Baptist being beheaded, and then concludes discipleship, his point was, this is the cost of being my disciple. It's going to cost you everything, right? This is what Mark does a lot. So whenever we come across these, far from going, what is going on, we have a literary indicator how to interpret this, and that's what we see here. 
So all that to say, because somebody asked me this morning, what's going on with Jesus and the fig tree? It's not like he didn't have his coffee and was all bent out of shape and took it out on the fig tree, right? It's not that Jesus was being a crank. There's a purpose in Mark inserting this narrative right here. And the way we can tell that this, this temple, that we're gonna look at the temple in verses 15 to 19, how that's really important, is we could remove that story entirely from our text and it won't miss a beat. Let me illustrate it to you. I'm gonna read you verses 12 to 14, and then I'm gonna skip over the whole portion about the temple and pick it up in verse 20, and you'll notice that that whole temple thing is kind of unnecessary almost. Verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs, and he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it, verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. We, could, we, we remove that entire section about the temple and the story continues on. You don't miss a beat. The fact that Mark sandwiches this, peric- this section of the temple is telling us there's something really in- interesting about this fig tree action and what Jesus is doing in the temple. In other words, it's the way you interpret it. But a lot of times people miss these literary features and so they misinterpret things and they come up with crazy conclusions. One of the most famous is a guy some of you may have heard of in college and philosophy class, Bertrand Russell, the famed philosopher and, 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 and opponent of the Christian faith. Based on this passage, he said he couldn't get over Jesus's vindictive fury of how he treated the fig tree. And so he wrote in his book years, years ago, Why I'm Not a Christian, Bertrand Russell writes this, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. Okay, in other words, what he's saying is, Jesus is pretty much a crank, and I don't think he's as good as the other people in history are. It's basically what Russell is saying here. Uh, to make sure we don't make that conclusion, because it is a kind of confusing narrative here, let me tell you what's going on. The fig tree is one of the only plants that bears fruit after its leaves would sprout. Okay, let me say that again. The fig tree is one of the only plants that bears its fruit after the leaves come to fruition. Pliny the Elder, the Roman naturalist, he's one of the guys who gave us the idea for the encyclopedia. He began one called the Naturalist Historia, and he's one of the first um, botanists and naturalists that would record these things, makes the same note. He says this, if leaves appeared without figs this early in the season, then that fig tree would never produce figs. Now, this is apparently a known occurrence. In other words, the fig tree fig tree should not have been in leaf at all, as Mark records. It wasn't the season for figs. So this fig tree should not have borne any leaves because it wasn't that season. Yet there was a fig tree appearing to have all these wonderful leaves out, which would indicate that there was fruit to be found there. In other words, what we're looking at here in Mark's gospel is a fig tree looking like a fig-bearing tree since it was leafy, but in fact, it was not so. You could say it was just kind of pretending to be what it should have been, but it wasn't. Friends, here's the point. This fig tree is a living 
parable of what's coming next. And what's coming next is a temple that's not what it seems. And here we get to the core of Mark's teaching for us this morning. Jesus is not flying off the handle here. He's he's not losing his cool. After all, remember in verse 11, what did it say after he entered the city? It's almost anticlimactic. He says he went to the temple, looked around, and left. In other words, he already assessed. He knew what was taking place in the temple. So the next morning, he's not just going into a fit of rage. He knows what he's expecting to see, which is why the fig tree narrative is so intentional because the exact same thing is happening with the temple. Just like the fig tree, the temple was something it's not. It might look healthy and good from a distance. The fig tree had all these leaves. The temple has all this activity, but upon closer inspection, in reality, neither one of them bearing fruit at all. Both of them pretending to be something they're not. Now, when it comes to the temple, we'll touch on that a little bit more, but I I think you get the idea here. This is why the fig tree narrative was so important. Jesus, to follow our narrative in verse 11, he sees what's going on in the temple grounds. The next morning, he sees the fig tree and thinks, this is gonna make a great illustration. He walks up to the fig tree bearing no fruit and curses it for trying to be something it's not. Walking to a temple, he knows full well it is not what it's supposed to be. It's a living illustration of one another. Now, let's get to Jesus clearing the temple, um, and that's how most of our Bible subheadings call it, but actually, that's a pretty wrong way to think of it. Jesus is not cleansing the temple. He's actually, in fact, kind of cursing the temple. Now, people often say that Jesus was angered because of the commercialism he found at the temple. Anyone ever see those Jesus movies, like in the 70s and 80s, they were real big, and, and Jesus is like kicking tables over, and there's birds flying and coins rolling, everyone, everyone's running away from Jesus because he's really ticked off, right, uh, because of the commercialism. So that's what some people say. Others say that Jesus was angered because the money changers and the people selling pigeons took up all the space so the Gentiles had no place to worship God, and so they couldn't even get into the temple, Right? Others say Jesus was angered because there actually was something called the court of the Gentiles to begin with. The fact of the matter is in Mark 11, we don't have, Mark doesn't give any one reason why Jesus was so angered. So what do we make of this? I think Jesus was angered at every, all of it, and none of it. So to the fact about the commercialism, if you're a note taker, write down Exodus chapter 30 verse 13. God said it was as a matter of visiting the the, the sanctuary and that they had to pay a half shekel. This is how, by the way, they would support the priests and everybody. The nation would show up and give a half shekel. Now, in order for people to do this, if you lived in the far off Judea or some other region, you needed to do a conversion. Everyone didn't use the same currency, right? It's like our day today. And so at the temple, they would have money changers who would convert the currency of other places to the shekel, the, the sanctuary shekel. And so it was a necessary thing that they needed to do. But the problem was people got greedy and the money changers would charge exorbitant interest fees or conversion fees and pilfer the, the people who didn't have the money. And so people were making a profit and what's the modern translation of that? I just, I think there's a lot of things that we see that, you know, look, faith, friends, the gospel's not a product we brand, right? Jesus is not a brand we market. And, and if you're looking for churches, please don't be drawn by the branding and marketing. 
Look under the hood and see if this is a gospel preaching church. So some people say it was the commercialism that Jesus was so upset at. Others say it was because the merchants took up all the space and Gentiles could not worship the Lord and that makes sense of what Jesus said from Isaiah 56 and, and, and that makes some sense, right? Until you realize how big the sanctuary is or the temple, let me show you a graphic of it. So this is a to scale model in Israel of what the temple would have looked like in the time of Jesus. Now, for us, that doesn't look too big, I guess, because if you look in the upper left-hand corner, you see somebody with a camera, so, but, now imagine that temple grounds is about 500 yards this way, about width, and then about 300 yards deep. That's a massive temple area. Now do you see in the perimeter, you can see those columns that all are on the perimeter. It would take three grown men to kind of wrap their arms around it to, to, to wrap around one of those columns. So this is a massive structure. Now, it's gotta be some massive uh, swap meet to have so many merchants that nobody could fit into that area. I mean, this is a huge place, right? So it's unlikely that there were so many money changers, so many pigeon sellers, that there was no room for any of the Gentiles there because it's simply massive, five football fields by three football fields. It's unlikely that they were squishing out all the Gentiles, okay? Now some people say, that God, Jesus was angry because there was even a court of the Gentiles. And what that means is, if you look, so you can see um, on the outside, that's the court of the Gentiles. On the inside, oh, so here, here's another point. So if Jesus was causing a ruckus and kicking every merchant out of the temple grounds, okay, 500 yards by 300 yards, Jesus was running around a lot, kicking over a lot of tables, right? That, that's, that fortress circled in red is the Antonio Fortress. The Romans built a fortress to look and make sure they could watch the temple grounds at all times because of the religious rebellions that would often happen in the Middle East. If Jesus was causing such a ruckus like that, then the Romans would have arrested him like the Romans came in in Acts chapter 21 when Paul was in the temple and everyone went nuts because they thought Paul was bringing Gentiles into the temple grounds and the soldiers came from the fortress to pull him out for his own safety. But in Mark's gospel, nothing like that occurred. So it's unlikely Jesus was running around the whole area kicking everyone out. Probably Jesus' action was somewhere in a corner but to make a more important symbolic point. Now, the last one was that Jesus was upset because there was a court of the Gentiles, and what you need to know about this is, in the Old Testament, there was only a division between the priests and the people. And the, the reason that is is that priests represent God to the people, and the priests represent the people to God. Everyone else was welcome because everyone else was in the same problem. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, we were all sinners and needed some reconciliation, so there was only one division, the people and the priests. But in these modern temples, as we've been talking, there was a place for the Gentiles, but the Gentiles could only go so far. Now what you're looking at is this, where you see these stairs, that was called the court of the women, and only Jewish women could go there. But Jewish women couldn't get even much closer because above those steps you have what's called the court of Israel, and only circumcised Jews could go there. So they had divisions for Gentiles, they had divisions for, for, for women, and then finally the men. And so you can see it kind of compared there. There's the court of the Gentiles, the big place on the outside. Then you can see kind of a zoomed in picture, the court of the women, and then the court of Israel. God intended, there needed to be a division because of a holy God and an unholy people, but humanity made divisions on gender. Humanity made divisions on, on race. 
and infuriated God, the furthest thing from what God intended. I want to point out one last thing here. Around this temple structure, you can probably see it. Um, Okay, you see on the very ground, they look kind of like tic-tacs lined up to each other. Now, those were barricades that basically separated the court of the Gentiles from the inner courts, and about every 13 yards or so, they would have these big stones, this is, an, uh, two, I mean, it's, it's old, it's over 2,000 years old, written in Latin and Greek, and basically they would say, if you're a Gentile and you cross this line, you're responsible for your own death and it will happen. This couldn't be the furthest thing from God's intention of his temple So when Jesus is teaching, he quotes Isaiah 56, and I'm gonna take it from verse six. This is what Jesus is teaching as he's he's accusing the temple of basically being a big failure. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, foreigners, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar because my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This is what Jesus calls out. The temple and the whole structure, everything, it couldn't be farther from the purpose it was intended to serve. Worse yet, Jesus says, you are a den of robbers. Now, I haven't been at a den of robbers. I don't think any of us have been at a den of robbers, but the idea is a den of robbers, that's where the, the, the bad guys would hide out, away from all the eyes of the authorities to count their loot and their haul and divvy it up, right? That's a stinging accusation to make against what should be a holy temple or a place where all people come and be reconciled to God is now compared to a cave where criminals are counting their loot thinking no one can see them. It's the same indictment that Jesus makes to the temple then. But I want you to hear the weight of this, so go to with me to Jeremiah where Jesus, this is gonna, we're going to read the very thing Jesus is quoting to the people of God in the temple, at the temple area at this time. And you'll see not only the relevance to why Jesus was upset and why he quoted Jeremiah 7 then, but if you read this, you will think that this applies to us in the 21st century as well. Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? By the way, notice he's quoting much of the Ten Commandments there. Verse 10, and then, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And notice in Jeremiah's prophecy, God is merely asking the question. When Jesus quotes it, God's making an accusation at this point. 
It's a very significant, subtle change that Jesus quotes here. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Verse 12, go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. This isn't the first time God judged his people for their religious hypocrisy or their hypocrisy in general. If you were here when we studied the book of 1 Samuel, you remember Shiloh was like the first, the original um, place where God would meet with his people in a little tent, and a little ark. And God said, if I wiped Shiloh out like he did, remember he judged them. He says, what makes you think I won't judge you now? And this was hundreds of years before Jesus now comes to the people and they're doing the same thing. They're trusting in, this is the temple. We're, we're good, right? Because we got the building. But their hearts were so far from God. And I love the way God says, you think I don't see? You don't, you don't think I see what you do? And yet you pretend to be my people? Oh, you are a den of robbers, Jesus says. You can see why there's so much traction in this because it's so applicable. Friends, whether it's in the people, the temple, or a fig tree, God does not abide hypocrisy. And, and that's what we see going on here. Unless any of us be tempted to think, man, I hope so-and-so's here because they, they, they really need to hear this because I think there's a little hypocrisy in there. The truth of the matter is, it's not if we're hypocrites. The question is, in what way and how deep? Friends, I hope you realize that, right? One of the freeing things about the Christian gospel is I don't have to fake the funk that I'm okay. It's not if I'm a hypocrite, it's in what ways and how deep that runs. It's not if you're a hypocrite, it's in what ways and how deep that runs. That's just the reality, friends. The most blistering truth of humanity that humanity can face is the authenticity of the cross which stands in stark contrast to the hypocrisy of humanity because we are always telling ourselves we're okay. This is why if you ever lovingly have to point out a friend's sin, it's such a rare gift that they actually respond to that. But what do they normally do? What do we normally do? No, I'm good. I have my righteousness. How dare you say I do these things? We deny the gospel we say we embrace. Friends, if we're, temp- if we're okay, then, then why is there a bloody cross in the center of human history? Because we're not okay. If Jesus was simply a good moral teacher, then why did so many people hate his guts? If Jesus was a raving lunatic, then why did so many, including his enemies, take him so deathly seriously? Right? The life of Christ condemns our hypocrisy, yours and mine. But the death of Christ forgives us of it and that's why I can own it. Yeah, I'm a hypocrite. My name is Rick Rodiver. I'm a hypocrite, right? We can do that because his life condemns me in its perfection, but his grace forgives me in his death, and that's the beauty of the gospel. 
and the temple and its leadership was the furthest thing from what it was supposed to be, and Jesus was proclaiming its end. That's why people got so mad at him. Let's get back to our text. So verse 19 in Mark, and when evening came, they left. So the, I hope that all makes sense, that the, the fig tree was a living parable, a little illustration of what the temple was. Jesus wasn't a crank. He was showing, I will judge and destroy hypocrisy. I'm doing something completely new, just like this temple. So that all makes sense. But what do we make of the following verses in verses 20 to 25? So let's take a look at it. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you curse has withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Now here's the question. Here's the million dollar question. Why does Jesus launch into some lesson on prayer and forgiveness? And what does that have to do with everything else that came before? Because we know they're connected because Mark connects it with the fig tree. Now, I don't know about you, but upon first reading, verses 20 and 25 seem really disconnected to everything we've read up to this point, doesn't it? Until you realize that verses 20 to 25 is Jesus' interpretation of the fig tree and the, temp barren, the barren fig tree and the barren temple. The fate of the fig tree is the fate of the temple. Jesus calls Peter and the other disciples to him, and he says, don't put your faith in a barren temple system, but now put your faith in God himself. You see, Jesus right here, he's not teaching the power of random prayer requests, like, hey, pray that God can move mountains because, and, and simply believe, and that's gonna happen to you because Mark eleven twenty three 23 says that. That is not what's going on here. For one thing, that's completely out of the context. For another thing, Jesus doesn't say pray to, about any mountain being removed, does he? What does he say? Look in the Bible. He says, if you pray this mountain, which mountain is he talking about? He's talking about the mountain they're on, the mountain that has the temple, the temple mount. Friends, there, and if you're in a community group, I put that in there because I couldn't have time to unpack it. There is a whole Old Testament theology and passages of Scripture that show mountains being thrown into the sea as a sign of God's judgment, mountains being moved and leveled as a sign of God's making the way for His new redemptive work. What the Lord is saying here is that you can be a part of God's direct redemptive work. You no longer have to go through a temple system to be mediated through the temple and the sacrifice and the priest system, it can all happen because God's doing a new work. You, you, you can almost hear the questions of the disciples because Jesus is saying something radical. Again, remember, keep in mind, we assume 2,000 years of Christian history. You didn't, you didn't just pray to God. You just didn't get forgiveness. You need to go to the temple. You need to bring a sacrifice. There is a whole system that God's put in place by His grace and mercy, though, to keep us separate, to understand the cost of sin and how to be made right. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You can pray that whole thing, get thrown in the ocean. Don't worry about it. You can almost hear their questions. Jesus, are you, are you sure that that can happen I mean, are you, are you saying we can get rid of this whole system and be made right with God? Verse 22 is Jesus' assurance. Have faith in God. Have faith in Yahweh. Have faith in the Lord. Don't put your trust in a corrupt system. 
Have faith in God. That's the assurance he's offering them in verse 23. He says, I'm telling you, whoever says to this mountain, this whole system, be taken up, thrown into the sea. If you don't doubt, don't worry. It can be done for you. Trust what God is doing. You can get rid of this whole system and you'll be okay. You want to know what the proof of that is? Prayer and forgiveness. You can pray directly to the Father. No more sacrificial systems, no more priestly mediators you need. You have direct access. Keep your finger in Mark. Go to uh, Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to go a little late this morning. I, I asked for some patience. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How in the world does one do that? Not in Judaism one doesn't because you got to go through the temple system. you got to make sure the priest is there. Friends, in order to understand any of what's going on in Mark, I want to encourage you, go home tonight. Here's some homework. Here's your homework. Read 1 Kings 8. Read 2 Chronicles 5 through 7. Your mind will be blown about the centrality of the temple. Then read Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. Your mind will be more blown how Jesus replaces the temple and the priest and the sacrificial system. And that's exactly what's going on here in Mark 11. The Lord's saying, look, you can get rid of this whole mountain, have faith in God, don't worry about it, because the evidence is now you can pray directly to the Lord through prayer, and your forgiveness is not mediated through sacrifices anymore. It comes directly through me. Again, back in Hebrews chapter 10, or back in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, this is what the writer says. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, by a single offering, what's he talking about? The crucifixion of Christ. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You no longer have to go through the systems of the priests and the temple and the sacrifice. You can pray and receive forgiveness and give for forgiveness directly because I'm doing away with the whole thing. Why do you think the religious leaders got so bloody murder mad at Jesus. Because, it wasn't because he was breaking them off, good truth. It was because he was threatening their entire existence and the corruption that he saw. Jesus was saying, get rid of this temple because I'm making a new temple the body of Christ, and get rid of all these priestly systems and sacrifices because I'm the sacrifice and I'm making a new priesthood. That's why in verse 28, we'll look at next week, the question the religious leader says, who do you think you are to say these things? And that's where verses 1 through 11 matter. Jesus says, weren't you there? I'm the king. I'm the king, and now I'm the, the focus of God's redemptive work, not this place anymore. And that's why they sought to kill him. Friends, I know a sermon like this um, the first hour, I said, look, I don't have really application for you because I know everyone's big on application. And then I realized, what a foolish thing to say. Here's the application. Worship Christ. That's the best possible application. You worship Christ and stop trusting systems and things, but it's all about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did to God's great glory and our great good. We can say, I'm a hypocrite. We can say, I believe in my own righteousness and I'm trying to fake the funk all the time. We can own that and say, I don't need to buy into that anymore because Jesus Christ is my righteousness. My identity, my acceptance, all those things are not mattered by the things of this world, but by the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
I stand before him and humanity, just as we all do, not on our own works, not our own accomplishments, but because of what he did. He's the new temple. He makes a whole new priesthood, and we're part of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the weight of Mark chapter 11. Thank you that you, in sending Christ, have overturned this world. Thank you that we are in a congregation where those lives are being overturned with great joy and glory and freedom to your glory and the good of your people. Father, we thank you that, it is through, through, that you reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, this is a, a tough passage to preach. Would you continue to reveal and show us who Christ is, that he is our hope, he is our salvation, he is the center of your redemptive work, and in that we can rejoice because he gave himself to us. Father, we thank you for the gospel, and we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.